0: Um, last Sunday was a bit rough have you recovered? <laughs> woohoo, there you go hold a visit um, I- I've got to say that. Uh, so last week, if you, if you missed it last week was the story of David and Bathsheba and um, I kind of moved away from the traditional David and Bathsheba had a nice little affair and isn't it wonderful but that it was actually sexual assault um, and we, we have just explored what that meant and what that looked like. And it was just, it was, it was not a pleasant moment last week. Um, I've got to say, it doesn't get better. <laughs> doesn't get better. Uh, the rest of the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel, comes down to, in large extent, David dealing with the consequences of his actions last week it's the kind of the unfolding of a family in meltdown and if the first kind of half of samuel has been about establishing the kingdom and god's kingdom being established by god's king the rest of the book of samuel kind of feels like a little bit of the the uh the the kingdom beginning to unravel at the seams, and there's this total destruction of what david started Last, next week is going to just be awful. Um, don't bring your children next week. Okay, I'm just warning you now. Don't bring your kids. It's not a kids' sermon, and it just it just gets worse and worse. What we're going to read this morning, though, in chapter 12, is uh, a confrontation of sin, a confession of sin. The consequence of sin, and I ran out of seas, it's the the kind of the forgiveness and grace and mercy of God mixed into that. So we're going to read the whole chapter this morning, all of chapter 12 of Second uh, Samuel. Again, I think a fairly well-known part of the story. So we finished last week with, is that going to annoy us? Yes. Okay, it might just be worth switching that off and switching these ones on, maybe. I don't know. Um, We finished last week with, but the thing that David did, did not please the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. Okay, maybe not all the lights, Brad. Maybe the back one's on. There you go, okay. Uh, There you go. Okay. So the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to David, he said there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, it grew up with him and his children, it shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay. For that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. And the elders of his household stood beside him to, to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. <laughs> on the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David and he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. And then David got up from the ground, and after he had washed, he put on lotions and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. <coughs> then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. And the servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you, you get up and eat. And he answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, and I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her, and he lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah, the Ammonites, and captured the royal citadel. And Joab sent messages to David, saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now, muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and and it will be named after me. And so David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. He took the the crown from the head of their king. Its weight was a talent of gold, and it was set with precious stones. And it was placed on David's head. And he took great quantity of plunder from the city, he brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brick making. He He did this to all the Ammonite towns. And then David and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. Man, there's some rough stuff in there, isn't there? I told you it wasn't going to get better. It kind of does, but you know, there's things mixed in it. So we saw last week that this story was about more than just adultery, that this, this, this story was more than just a romantic fling, that this story was the, about the abuse of power and about sexual assault. And it was a dark moment in the life of David. And, and, and to be honest, it's a dark moment for Bathsheba too. Now, chapter 12 happens, and it's, it's not just next week or even next month. It's several months down the road. It's, it's at least seven months down the road, and some think it may be as much as two years later. And the point is that David has settled back into some kind of routine and settled into some sense of life goes back to normal. I've got away with it. Everything's being covered up. No one really knows what happened. I now have an extra wife in my harem and an extra child to add to my list of heirs. He's covered it up. He's got away with it. Everyone is none the wiser. Except if you read Psalm 32, you read there a Psalm of David talking about how he dealt with with this moment in his life. And he says, when I covered my sin, my bones wasted away within me. And he talks about the weight of God's uh, conviction resting upon him. And so as much as on the outside it looks like David's got it all together and everything's been covered and dealt with, on the inside he knows the weight of his guilt and he, he knows that things have gone wrong. His conscience is plaguing him. And then one day Nathan arrives. Now, Nathan, we've met him before. He appeared in chapter 7. He's the guy who came to David and said, God is establishing a covenant with you, and you and your family will be on the throne forever. So we know Nathan. Nathan is no stranger to David, and the fact that Nathan gets himself into the palace and has a private audience with David indicates that he's he's you know David trusts the guy. And Nathan comes in, and you've got to love just how skillfully Nathan unmasks David. See, Nathan doesn't come in dishing out accusations and wagging the finger and saying, how dare you? Because we all know what response that gets. Blustering, excuses, uh, lawyered up, you know, we, it just results in a little bit of anger and defensiveness. So, so Nathan doesn't come in and get straight to the point and just wag the finger. He comes in and tells this great story. And it's the story of power and weakness, a story of a man who's got it all and someone who has very little, and and it's the story of this this little lamb who's the family pet, the lamb that's like a, a daughter to the family. And when when uh, when a visitor comes, the rich man doesn't just randomly take something from his flock, but comes to the poor man and takes what is not his own and takes what is precious. To the poor man and has that for lunch and, and the, the story works wonderfully but there's also bits of it that don't quite fully match up it's not a perfect match is it I mean we get it David's the rich man we understand that and I think you read the story and you understand that then Uriah is obviously the poor man and Bathsheba is the sheep and yet in the story it's the sheep that dies And not the poor man which is a kind of a strange thing because that's not quite how the story actually goes and yet in a sense Bathsheba has died and in a sense David has destroyed her hopes and dreams and everything else and I think we we see the injustice of the story and we see in the story a reflection of how our world works We see how the rich have so much and the poor have so little and how the rich get richer often at the expense of the poor and how often the poor are exploited and how often the poor lose all that they have uh, and that the rich benefit and how often the poor are powerless to prevent that. And for some of us, a measure of righteous anger burns in us. And we want to go, that's not right. We need to fix this. We need to change this. At least I hope that's that's how we, we feel. And there is an anger, a righteous anger that burns in David as well. How dare this happen? How dare this type of injustice take place in my king, in God's kingdom where I'm the king? This kind of injustice must be rooted out and the irony of it all is completely lost on David. As the Lord lives... He says, which is kind of interesting because David has lived for the last few months, couple of years, as though God did not live at all. Last week, there is no mention of God until the very last verse. It's like David pretends that God is not around at all. Now, suddenly, as the Lord lives, this man must die. And it's an extreme response. The law does not demand death for taking someone's lamb. That's not what the law demands. What the law demands is what David says later, four times payment. Um, you took the lamb, you need to give four lambs back. That's, that's the extent of the law. But the, the the reaction of David is huge, isn't it? Because he sees, sometimes, sometimes we know the law, but sometimes what is right is more than what the law is. And David sees right and wrong in this. And he sees the injustice of this, and it's like, he has to die. How can such a man live with no pity? How can such injustice occur in God's kingdom under my rule? And David condemns himself. Because he's the one who did this. And he's the one who did it with no pity at all. And David, it's kind of funny because David is looking in a mirror... And cannot identify the reflection that he sees as his own. Because that's what Nathan's doing. He's holding up a mirror and David, can you see? And David's going, no, I can't. I don't recognize that guy in the mirror. And Nathan says, you should, because it's you. And so Nathan has to spell it out. He has to say, that's you, David. You're the rich guy. God gave you everything. And if everything wasn't enough, he would have given you more. Because God loves to give stuff he wants to give you stuff and he's like God would give you more and more and more if you you, if you just asked but instead the words of Nathan are strong he says you've despised the word of the Lord you've despised the Lord himself and what you've done is evil and that's precisely the definition of of all of us who, let me unpack some Bible words for sin, we came across some of these in our Bible study this week. Uh, the Bible uses different words to define and describe what our sin is. In some places the Bible talks about sin as missing the mark. Right? There's a goal and you aim for the goal and you miss it. Some of you, not many of you, watch soccer. Some of us watch soccer, some of us have favorite soccer teams. And, and when the soccer player, I know some of you are shaking your heads, how on earth, it's just the best thing ever. How on earth can they miss the open goal, right? How can, and yet that's what our sin is like. There's a target, there's the goal, and we miss it by a long way. I swear the Bible talks about sin as falling short of a target, not quite getting there. We have a dartboard in our garage that is used regularly with our t- by our teenagers, There are many of our teenagers who, like the soccer goal, miss the target completely and so there are marks, no, there is chipped paint all the way, I mean there's a board and it's in a box and they miss that even and there is just chipped paint all the way around as our teenagers regularly mm, miss the mark. In addition to missing the mark there have been several times where our carpet on the floor has begun to fray because they have fallen short of the mark it's like halfway for ladies and the dart just constantly falls short that's what we should be aiming for and we fall short and those are some of the descriptions of what sin is that there's a target and we've missed it and there's a target that God calls us to aim for and we fall short of it or there is a line and we overstep the mark when we go oh boy i've sinned and some of us are brave enough to acknowledge that to say i've missed the mark i've done something wrong i've been bad i've been naughty i've messed up or whatever other words and excuses we want to use to deal with our sin and to kind of identify our sin there are three things that we can't ignore when it comes to defining our sin and it's the things that Nathan challenged David with. You've despised his word, you've despised him, and what you've done is evil. And we don't like to use those kind of words to, de- to describe us and our sinfulness. We're comfortable with saying, I messed up. We're comfortable with saying, I made a mistake. We're very comfortable with saying, it wasn't my fault. Um, we're, we're, we're even, some of us are even comfortable enough to say, I have sinned. But not many of us like to say, I'm evil, or I've despised God and his word. Let let me just unpack three things, right? Those three things. We've despised his word. God's word is good. God's word brings us life. And when we live by his word, we live in joy and delight. There's a lovely verse in Psalm 119, I think it's verse 25. Um, uh, My soul clings to the dust. Bring me life according to your word. That defines me so often. My soul clings to the dust, to the here and now, to the rubbish, to the things that are here. That's what my soul seems to cling to. Bring me life according to your word. His word brings us life. When we sin, we are always denying and defying the truth of his word. And we're clinging to the dust instead. We can sugarcoat our sin, our greed, and our lust, and our scorn, and our ridicule, and our racism, but in in breaking God's laws, we are saying your word, and what you say to be true, is not true in this moment, and we effectively despise His word. We're saying, your word is not good enough. There is another word, there is a better word, that will bring me life, right? Right? When Adam and Eve in the garden, there's the snake at the tree, did God say, let me bring you a better word. There is the word of God that brings life. Adam and Eve, eat from any tree you like, just don't eat from that one. Those are life-giving words. And then another word comes along, this fruit. If you eat this fruit, it will bring you joy. And Adam and Eve have to decide, which word will we listen to? And they despise the word of God and reject it and say, 'll we'll eat the fruit. It's what we do. We despise his word. In our moment of sin, we despise him. <laughs> I know our, our first response is no of course not. we don't despise I'm a, I'm a good Christian person. I don't despise God. Is there are times when I sin? there are times when I disappoint him and I, I let him down, but I, I don't despise him. I, I love Jesus. I come to church and read my Bible. But again, if we love him as our hearts claim, then how, how can we explain our actions when we defy him and turn our back on him and walk away from him? How else do we define what we've done? And then David says, or Nathan says, what you did is evil. What you've done is evil and evil is a strong word I mean we reserve the word evil for a very special select group of people who do very special select things we reserve it for Hitler and for Stalin and for Jeffrey Dahmer and for Putin and for the guy that switches the lights off at ESCOM um, right those that that category that's the category of evil we have right really bad guys But me? I'm naughty. I'm a little bit bad. Some of you might even be willing to say I'm very bad. But am I evil? Surely not. And yet it's the word that Nathan uses to describe David. He says, what you did is evil. And again, we could look at the story and go, well, look, we understand why, why David's actions are called evil. I mean, he, he murdered someone. There's sexual assault going on here. No wonder he's evil. But, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not there yet. <laughs> um, I, I, I haven't murdered. I'm, I'm not committing sexual assault on anyone. I, I'm not there. And yet we have to remember the words of Jesus, who says if anyone hates his brother or calls his brother a fool... He might as well hate his brother, he might as well be a murderer. And if anyone looks on someone lustfully, has already committed adultery in his heart, actually we're no different to David. Our actions are evil. And I, just, I think that if we can get that perspective on our sin, then we will have a far, far deeper understanding of grace. And I know we don't, we don't want, we don't, nobody wants to come to church and be beaten on their head and be told they're evil. Um, You don't want, you didn't, I don't think you came here this morning expecting the pastor to say you're an evil bunch. Um, But until we grasp that, we can't grasp grace. Like like Kevin was saying about John Newton, uh, until John Newton recognized the depths of his evil, it was only then that he could plumb the true depths of grace. Here's where it starts to get a little rough. There are consequences for actions, and we know this. There are consequences to our behavior. God may forgive us of our sin, but the consequences remain. And David confesses his sin. He repents of his sin. We'll find in a moment that he finds full and complete forgiveness for his sin, but the consequences of his sin remain, and the consequences of David's sin are going to lead him down a very dark and difficult path. Some of the things that David is going to have to deal with in the months and years that lie ahead. Nathan says the sword will never depart from your home. Now, I want to be clear. It's difficult. And I I, I think I'm right in saying this, that these things is not God's punishment for David's sins. All right? What, What unpacks next is not God punishing David. God is simply saying to David, here's what's going to happen because of what you've done. Right, So this is not God coming up with some weird and wonderful ways to punish him. And God says to David, because of your actions, the sword will never depart from your family. And the rest of the book shows that happening. Three of David's sons will die violently at the edge of a sword. The books of Kings and Chronicles will show that violence dogs the house of David. This is not God saying, I'm going to do this to you because of what you did. It's God saying, you've done this to yourself. Your actions of violence is an action that will now perpetuate through your family. Let me show you a hint of the future that you've bought for yourself. Then God says there's something else that's coming. Someone very close to you will will take your place and then it gets really ugly. And that someone will take all your wives and will do what you did to Bathsheba. That He will rape them in full view of Israel. How on earth? I mean, does that not just shock for a moment? Is that not just appalling? And God says to David, you you, you performed your action in secret. But somebody's going to do this in public. Now, what happens a couple of years later, spoiler alert, is that Absalom is the guy who steps up and says, I'm going to take this kingdom from my father. And David has to go and run, and Absalom says to a couple of his counsellors, what can I do to show the nation that I'm in charge and my father is shamed? And some guy comes up with a bright idea, why don't you put a tent up on the roof of the palace where all of Israel can see and have your father's wives brought to you one by one, and you can lie with them. In other words, you can rape them one by one. So Bathsheba's in that crowd, just by the way. She was raped by David, and now she's going to be raped by David's son. Is that not just... I don't know. I don't even have words to to, to, to kind of comprehend that. And for Absalom to get up there and to one by one rape his various stepmothers, which is just an odd thing in itself. And again, just to be clear, this is not God thinking up some wacky punishment for David, This is the natural unfolding of the results of David's choices. David has shown his sons how to behave, and his sons have learnt at the feet of the master. And the sons will perpetuate what the father has done. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. So spare a thought for Bathsheba, who's lost her innocence, who's lost her husband, who's lost her future. But there's one last thing that must happen and this is dark and I'm not sure that this is a consequence of the actions or that this this becomes again just a difficult thing to wrestle through and I, I don't even know if I can give you a straight answer but Nathan says there's one more thing that must happen David your son must die the child of your rape and again it's hard to read this isn't it unless you're reading it in Christianese and I don't know dolly it up somehow it's it's hard to read the Lord struck the child that's what it says the child was sick for seven days and then the child dies and you have to kind of go how how can this be why do the innocent suffer instead of the guilty how is it that David lives but his son must die Why is it that the son must die for the sins of the father? And how does Bathsheba deal with this? Who has lost her husband, lost her innocence, lost her future, and now she loses her son. It's hard. And God essentially says, I must be shown to be just. And it's hard. And David pleads for the child's life because, who knows, maybe the Lord will have mercy. And yet part of me wonders, is it not a mercy that God spared this child from the sword that will devour the house of David? Perhaps that's... I don't know. And you, lo- I, I've got to love how this pans out in the end. I mean, it's, it's, it's a dreadful thing to, to experience and to go through. But at the end of it, when the child dies... The staff are expecting David to do something stupid. But instead, David gets up and worships. The response to his son's death is to go and worship. To have a bath and put the lotion on. (laughs) Put a lotion, that's what it says. And the servant's like, What's going on, David? And David says, I pleaded while the child was still here. But now that the child is gone, he's gone. He's not coming back to me. He's with God. And one day I will go to him. And David's able to move on. Mixed in with that are David's words of confession. Where David says, I have sinned against the Lord. They're simple words. And there's a bigger truth there because he's also sinned against Bathsheba. And he sinned against Uriah, and he sinned against the rest of his family, and to be honest, he sinned against the nation. But David recognizes that at its essence, sin is always first and foremost against God. And you've got to compare David and Saul here. When when Saul was confronted by his sin with a prophet, and the prophet says, what have you done? Saul goes, well, it wasn't me. The people wanted it. And, you know, um, uh, know, duck and dive. Uh, We were actually saving this for sacrifice. It's actually, we're going to, you know, we're justifying our actions and our behaviors. Saul prevaricates and covers up and does all sorts. And that's why Samuel says to Saul, God's taking the kingdom away from you. David doesn't cover up and pretend. David's been, in a sense, caught. And David goes, I've sinned, and I've sinned against the Lord. And you can read Psalm 51 and read more fully his uh, the expression of David's repentance there. And, 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 and it is for, for you and I, when, when we are convicted of our sin, to, to leave, leave aside the excuses and the blame game and the whatever else and be able to just say, I have sinned against the Lord a very famous uh, pastor in Australia who was recently uh, convicted of drunk driving. Got a fine, suspended jail sentence, and he's not allowed to drive for three years or something. He puts out a tweet, and his tweet goes something like, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have done it. I was at a party with friends... And we'd had a bit of a, you know, had too many and it's been a really stressful time in our church at the moment and we've had to deal with a lot of issues in our church and I just wasn't quite sure how to deal with the stress of the moment and, but you know what, no excuses. I'm like, your whole tweet was an excuse. (laughs) How often are we like that, right? You know, this and this and this and this and this, but no excuses, I was at fault. Now you've just given us all the reasons why you're not at fault. We love to add our buts and our reasons are becauses because it kind of absolves us a little bit, right? It, it makes us sound less evil than what we we really are. And David just goes, "Yep, I sinned against God." Now here's the thing: God is so gracious, and God says, "Your sin has been taken away." And it's a it's a mind blowing concept. We 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 read it and we're like, "Ah, oh, well, that's nice. God takes away." David's sin was not just covered over. David's sin was not just ignored or forgotten about. God says your sin has been completely removed, taken away. And you've got to wonder, how on earth can God do that? What, in a sense, what does God gives God the right to just take it all away? Has David grovelled enough? Doesn't look like it. It doesn't feel like much grovelling going on here. It's the Old Testament. Surely David needs to offer a sacrifice. Doesn't David need to go and take a, 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 one of the sheep from his flock and offer that as a sacrifice to say, God, look how sorry I am. What about like half the sheep of his flock? Maybe that would be sufficient. Doesn't David have to pay for something here? It's not right that he just gets forgiven, taken away. I mean, it doesn't even read as though David's gone to say sorry to Bathsheba yet. So how on earth can God just go, oh, okay, you're sorry? Yeah, sure, fine, sin's forgiven. When Nathan confronted David, he used a wonderful little phrase, and it's, it just reads so much better in the King James Version. Thou art the man. I love that. Thou art the man. It just sounds so thou art the man. And you know, it's it's dramatic, and it's Thou art the man, and it's that finger in the face, right? And it's worth looking back and just considering that kind of th- that phrase and how it appears in various in various places in the scriptures. Right back in Genesis, God creates Adam, or in Hebrew, Hadam, which just means the human. God created the human, and he put the human in the garden and said, name all the animals And David's, oh, David, sorry. And the human spends a fair amount of time going around identifying phylums and geniuses and families and whatever else of, you know, where does the elephant fit and how is that connected to the shrew? And at the end of it all, God says it is not good for the human to be alone. And so he takes, he he makes the human fall asleep and takes a bit from the human and calls the human ish. Ish! (laughs) Ish! ish ish and isha or isha right and ish means the man and isha means from the man and so now we've got this adam and eve story that's now about the man and the woman and you've got the man in genesis chapter 2 and 3 And there's the man, the ish, in the garden, under God's blessing, with everything that God could give him, and more. And the ish does the same thing that David does. Kevin's killing himself, he just can't take this ish thing. (laughs) The ish does as David does, despises God, despises God's word, does what is evil, eats the fruit, faces the consequences of his evil action by being exiled from the garden. And before he leaves the garden, God says to Eve, From you will come one, the Ish, <laughs> the Ish will come who will crush the serpent's head. And they leave the garden, and Adam lies with his wife Eve, and she conceives and gives birth to a son. And she says, The Lord has helped me conceive what? Ish. The Ish. the man, the man who's going to crush the serpent's head. And what does Cain do? He crushes his brother's head. (coughs) Gets it wrong. And we spend the rest of the Bible waiting for the man. Capital T, capital M. We're waiting for the man. The one that was promised. The one who will will fix what the first man messed up. And we get to David and we think maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the man. It's the best we've had so far. He's established the kingdom of God in righteousness. The the kingdom has, has spread. There is grace and mercy under his rule. And we think surely this is the moment when the enemies of God will be defeated. And we're like the man. And Nathan steps up and says yes. Behold, thou art the man, the ish. Except he's not, is he? It's ironic that Nathan calls him the man. You are the man because he certainly isn't. You are the man condemned. And our heads droop because we're like, now what? What? And then you fast forward a thousand years... And you find Jesus with Pilate, and Jesus and Pilate engaging in conversation, and uh, Jesus talking about truth, and Pilate going, what is truth? And Pilate saying to Jesus, I hear you're a king, and Jesus says, you know it. And, And there's this conversation between them, and at the end, Pilate says, look, I don't see any reason for you to be condemned, and he says to the priests, what about it? And the priests are like, no, this is a bad guy. And so Pilate has Jesus whipped and beaten beyond recognition, so that he's barely he's barely human and looks anymore and and Pilate brings jesus out onto the balcony and says those wonderful listen I, i'm just i'm just bragging today right and my, my linguistic ability and, and he uses that wonderful latin phrase echo homo behold the man and that little phrase that just keeps popping up right in genesis the man who will crush the serpent's head, with David, who he thought could be the one, the man, but he's, <laughs> he's the man condemned. And then there's another man condemned. Behold, look, see the man. Is David the man? David is the man condemned. Jesus Jesus is the man, but he's also condemned. But while David was justly condemned, Jesus is unjustly condemned. Nathan says to David, you have sinned, but you shall not die. You are the man, and you will not die. And the Pilate says to the crowd, behold the man, and the crowd shout out, he must die. Everything is reversed. Do you want to know how God can forgive David? Well, this is how. But there's another step in this. Remember how I said just a little while ago, and we all felt it, just how unjust this whole thing is, that David's son must die. And how unfair that is, that the innocent son must die for the guilty father. And it's wrong. And Jesus is David's greatest son, who is the innocent son who dies In the place of his father. David. And you know what? It's true. It's not fair. It is unjust. There is a sense in which God displaying his justice to the world. And his justice goes, someone must die for sin. And it's not you. And that's not fair. But it's just. And Jesus, who loved the word of God and loved the Father and obeyed his every word and did not despise him, and who who, who obeyed the word, who, who only ever did righteousness and never did evil, dies in the place of you and me, of those who despise him and despise his word, and those who work evil in their hearts, and forgiveness is possible for David, and forgiveness is possible for me, Not because of sacrifices and apologies and and trying harder to be better and going for therapy. Forgiveness and grace is given because the innocent son dies. And here's how it ends. David finally acts like a man and comforts his wife. It's what men do. It's about the first manly thing that David has done in the last two chapters. Our society says it's manly to to have a few beers and notch up another chick. It's manly to go and love his wife. Want to be a real man? Love one woman for 50 years. That's hard. (laughs) And then another child is born, and they call him Solomon, which means peace. And out of this chaos that has come, there's this recognition. Of peace and then Nathan hears that the child has been born and he comes back and he says listen you need to know that God loves this child you need to call this child God loves him and isn't that just wonderful restoration of what's gone on in the midst of the pain and the sadness and the sorrow and the hatred and the evil and the wickedness and the destruction of lives To hear at the end of God's love? And the whole mess ends where it started. The war with the Ammonites is still ongoing. That was was going on in 11 chapter 1. Remember? Chapter 1 verse 1. In the the time of the year when kings go to war, David stayed at home. David should have been with the Ammonites. And now, after how much time has, has passed... Finally, David does what he should have done in the first place and it's kind of a reset. David goes to war. David uh, Destroys the, the enemies of God. David comes home with another crown on his head and the story almost resets You and I sin We have the capacity for evil in us. The heart is desperately wicked and in, in our sinful actions, we, sh- we show that we disregard the Word of God. Martin Luther said once that no one breaks any of the Ten Commandments without first breaking the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods. We sin because we briefly, madly, in a moment of temporary insanity, fall in love with something other than God. And we're all like this. And we can harden our hearts, and we can numb our conscience, and we can redefine our sins and our actions, but those things will not bring us life. Or, or we can come in simple confession. I have sinned against God. And because the innocent Son of God, the Lamb, has died for you, you shall not die, but live. And the consequences will remain, but there is restoration, there is life, and there is love. And there is grace. So, what about you? Do some of you carry still the weight of guilt? Do some of you still feel that? Do some of you still feel that burden? Do some of you, uh, we know that there is complete forgiveness in Jesus. He's forgiven us in his past, present, and future. But do some of us still carry with us a burden of guilt, of something said or something done this morning, last week? Last year, 10 years ago, do we still uh, have this lingering of past shame? And then the outside, it, we feel as though we've got it together, but on the inside. Then I want to invite you this morning. Invite you to confession. And in confession, find that God forgives you and God sets you free. And won't you, like David, let go of the sin that binds, release the conscience that holds, come clean, confess your sin. Not to me, I'm not your high priest. But sometimes it's helpful to talk to others and let the secret out. But speak to your great high priest and hear him say, your sins are taken away, you shall not die. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, this morning we thank you for amazing grace. That we who have this capacity for evil find that there is forgiveness and grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And Lord, many of us bear the weight of our sin. Oh, we've we've we, we've sought forgiveness of some kind. And yet we feel, so many of us still feel that weight that, that, that still rests in us. The, the scars of past sin remain. For some of us, we feel like we've covered it up. That no one knows and no one sees. And we're kind of hopeful that even you might have, you know, forgotten about it, <laughs> overlooked it. But Lord, we come to you this morning in humble confession. For, Lord, you know our hearts. You know the evil within. You know the times we have despised you and despised your word. And, O oh Lord, this morning we beg forgiveness. We plead for mercy. Lord Jesus, thank you that you, the innocent Son, have died in our place. And that forgiveness is given. And Lord, I pray this morning that people here would, would receive that. Receive that with great joy. Receive the life that you have brought. Amen.